One more quick message before we start today's show. I want to tell you guys about a great libertarian blog called The Liberty Theorist. The Liberty Theorist is where our friend Brad Tracy discusses all of the shady things government has been up to and why libertarianism is the only viable way to keep power out of the hands of government. Brad is a Rothbardian libertarian who believes that the U.S. is desperately in need of prison reform. I'll give you a uh, hell yeah to that. I agree there. That victimless crime should be abolished. Yes, agree with that. And that we need to end the welfare, warfare, and spy state. Yep, follow along with you there. And that true free market capitalism is the only way to go. Well, socialism kills human production. Can't argue with that. Bottom line, the government should stay the hell out of your life. You can find The Liberty Theorist by going to medium.com slash at, that's the at sign, Liberty Theorist. You can also find it on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash The Liberty Theorist. Check it out today. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here at Lions of Liberty, we have a bit of a uh, variety channel. My Friday show, Felony Friday, is one of the great shows, but there's two more on Monday and Wednesday. Monday's show hosted by Mark Clare, Wednesday by Brian McWilliams. They both bring their own flavor and flair to the podcasting game. Check those out. Subscribe to Lions of Liberty on your podcasting app to get all three. And today's episode of Felony Friday is another great one. I have an awesome guest lined up who is going to share another story of injustice in the criminal justice system. And we're going to shine a light and we are going to keep the momentum going, keep the momentum going for change in the criminal justice system. So share this show, tell a friend, text it to a friend, tell a stranger on the street. I don't care. Enjoy today's show. All right. My guest today on Felony Friday is Quante Bosco Adams. Quante spent 28 of his first 45 years of life confined in cells in juvenile county, state, and federal detention facilities. However, he's rewriting his story now, and he's also looking to, through his story, to inspire change and hope. Back in May of 2006, he was facing an impending conviction, and he actually escaped from a maximum security detention facility. And he was not captured not long after that, but the escape caught you know, the attention of people worldwide and uh, really gained a following from that. Fast forward more recently, January 2020, uh, Quante discovered a loophole, a loophole in the law that would help him to change his own story. He ended up firing his uh, court appointed attorney, fought for his own freedom, and he was granted his immediate release in July of this year, July 24th. He is the author of Chasing Freedom which was optioned for a feature film, which I believe already began production. We'll talk about that. Quante, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here, man. And, you know, you're a fascinating guy. You've led a, 
I mean, there's a lot to talk about that you've gone through in your life. And, uh, you know, reading through your biography and seeing where you began, um, obviously the, the thing that's captured a lot of attention is, is your, you know, escape from, uh, from prison. And then, I mean, just recently, you know, fighting for your own freedom and getting released from prison in July of, uh, of this year, just uh, amazing story. So before we get into to all of that, uh, what I like to do with my guests is really kind of set the table and let people know, you know, where things began um, so they can get a sense, you know, sense for you as a person. So if you could just share kind of starting out in your, your childhood, what, what did your, your childhood look like in your early years? Uh, I was born in Compton, California. Uh, my family and environment was at that time, it was the seventies. So, you know, it was right at the, uh, beginning in, of the game culture. Uh, most of my family, father and everybody, they were Crips from Compton. And so my childhood was a little bit different. <laughs> a lot different than, than most other children. I wasn't raised uh, to be a child, so to speak. I kind of grew up fast and uh, had like a, a a wise soul and did things that most people at, you know, as a child didn't do. Like for instance, uh, I started selling drugs when I was about 10 years old and wow. And a lot of that was pretty much due to my circumstances, environments, and the decisions I made because, like I said, I was surrounded by it. It was like, that's all I saw. That's all I knew. So it was like, it was normal. I I honestly didn't see anything else. So you can kind of say that I was kind of like educated and, and taught to, you know, step outside of the bounds of the law at, at a young age. So. You know, so so was that, you know, kind of just a, a natural step, you know, in, in a lot of, I guess, more normal situations. I hate to use that word, but, uh, you know, people would look at going out, getting a job. That was just just your next step. That was that was that was pretty much normal for for my environment. And it's like, I mean, I I can kind of look back and say, like, honestly, that. In the neighborhoods that I grew up in, I rarely saw people get up in the morning and go to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so as a child, you know, I was always curious. And uh, But one thing is I, I never liked to ask questions. So I used to try to, you know, come up with conclusions and answers to all of the thoughts that's running through my head on my own. And, you know... So at a young age, to me, when I started seeing the things that were taking place in my community, you know, the crime, the drug dealing, the lack of employment, uh, I started to believe that that right there was what (laughs) being a black child in America was supposed to be. That was like the only picture that I had of a black person. I didn't ha- I didn't have any role models or, you know, I, most kids have people who they look up to that are productive as role models. I, I never had any of that. I, I never seen any of that. So 
with that said, my childhood was kind of like distorted uh, a lot more than most other children uh, growing up at that time. And, and, and a lot of it was based on the things that I was exposed to. Like, like again, like I say, my, my entire family were Crips. My father was one of the original Compton Crips. Uh, those are the men who I saw. Those were the people who I looked up to. Uh, so starting at a young age, they were the ones who pretty much gave me my identity of what and who I am supposed to be as a man <laughs> and as a person. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much to, to answer your question, my childhood was, uh, it was different. <laughs> it was a lot different than, uh, than most other children. And, and, and it was definitely not what a childhood, uh, is supposed to be like. So taken from uh, the biography you sent me here. So age of 10, you start selling drugs. Um, start, you started driving. Is that right? You started driving at age 11? Yeah. <laughs> what, what was that like? <laughs> it was great. Actually, I, I bought my first car before I even knew how to drive. And uh, <laughs> How did that happen? But, you know, uh, like I said, I started selling drugs around that time. So uh, I would sit out there in the, in the projects and in the parking lot and, and make several hundred dollars a day just selling drugs. And I had so much money and, you know, I've seen everybody else had cars and all that. So I wanted me a car. So <laughs> uh, I had a cousin in Watts who actually had a car for sale. So uh me and my sister caught the bus over there. I bought the car and she drove it home for me. Right? And I never let my mother any know because at the time, you know, my father had been out of my life or whatever. So I pretty much grew up in just with my mother and uh, my two sisters. And so we drove the car back to the apartments we lived in and parked it in the back end. I never told my mother that I actually had the car at that time. So just every day <laughs> I would go out back and I would just start the car up and, you know, just start playing around with it. And I taught myself how to drive. Next thing you know, I'm driving around the block and I'm getting on the freeway. And I'm wow. from that point on, I was just, <laughs> and by that time it had came out. So she knew that I had a car and was driving it. So I went from that car to, started buying more cars and uh, customizing them and, and that's how I, how it was i was a lot lot a lot more advanced than, <laughs> than did most you ever of, get ever get pulled over when you were that young yeah <laughs> i got pulled over a lot of times sometimes i actually went to jail they took me down to the police station called my mother to come get me towed the car sometimes they would just take the keys from me wow so you're driving at the age of 11, you dropped out of school at 13. And then, I mean, you said, you said you got arrested a couple of times for, for driving the car. What was your first, uh, drug arrest? My first drug arrest was when I was 13. Uh, I was standing out in the parking lot in the projects, selling rocks, crack, uh, had some crack, rocks on me. Police swooped up. I threw the rocks. He saw me when I found them. Took me to jail. Uh, mother came and got me out of jail. Uh, 
I had to go back and forth to court. And eventually, I think it took like a little more than a year through the court processes. And I was sent to juvenile camp. But mm -hmm. that came after I committed another crime. So they kind of grouped it all together and sent me to, to juvenile like boot camp. How much time did you spend there? Six months. Six months and you came back. Did you, I mean, did you go back to that juvenile camp or just the six months? Nah, I, I, I did six months. It, what happened was I was, uh, another drug arrest. I got caught up in this undercover sting where police undercover cops dressed up like gang members came to purchase drugs from me. And, mm -hmm. It happened to result in a shootout wow. with with the cops. And so I was arrested for that. And somebody else who was actually with me at the time uh, was who actually was was seriously engaged in the shootout. He was arrested and we, I went to trial for that and pretty much got found not guilty because the uh, identity issues at the time they actually arrested somebody else. I, I actually got away uh, I hmm. ran from the scene got away the guy who was with me was arrested and they arrested another guy on the scene also and the cops identified the other guy who happened to look just like me because we all used to dress alike back then and the cops identified him as as me and so later on when they actually uh caught me they found out that that guy wasn't the person and then later on like a week or two later when they caught me and i went to trial uh my lawyer brought that up that you know they identified several other people so pretty much i kind of weaseled out of that and was sentenced for the drugs that i had got caught with a year prior that I told you about earlier, and they mm -hmm. sent me to the little boot camp for six months. I think I got out of boot camp for about three months, and after that, I went back to the California Youth Authority, in which I was sentenced to a life sentence in the California Youth Authority for a robbery. And when I was in the California Youth Authority... You were sentenced to a life sentence? What? Yeah, at the time... The way the court process worked in California was that anybody under the age of 16, uh, you automatically, you're in a juvenile court. You mm -hmm. can't be, back then, you couldn't be tried as an adult unless you were actually 16 and you had to go through a process. At the time, I was actually 14 when I committed the crime. So uh, I remained in the juvenile court and the juvenile court found me guilty uh, a judge trial found me guilty and they sentenced me to life in the California Youth Authority. And at the time, a life sentence in the California Youth Authority was until you turn 25. So once you turn 25, then you pretty much, uh, your custody in the Youth Authority is, is pretty much complete and terminated. So at that time, I was sent to the California Youth Authority for a life sentence. And the thing about it, though, is every year you go before the parole board and they have the option of letting you go before your 25th birthday. And so, I mean, it just, it's, 
it's crazy. Like my entire youth and childhood was pretty much <laughs> wasted behind bars because of you know all my criminal activity. And what life. was your what was your mindset back then towards towards everything that was happening? I mean, spending all this time being detained, um, selling drugs. Which I mean, what, what was your attitude like? You know, once you got out, what were you looking forward to? When I got out, which time? Um, when you released at released at the age of nineteen. Okay. When I now see, that's a whole another story. There is because. Actually, when I was 17 and I was in the California Youth Authority, okay. uh, a friend of mine and I, we actually assaulted uh, some guards at the jail. We, we assaulted a guard at the jail in the California Youth Authority. And uh, a woman counselor happened to be she she got you know kind of got not beat up bad but you know she got hit and so we were placed in solitary confinement because you had to understand like back then my life was just i was wild as a juvenile i was completely wild i didn't i didn't have any type of uh conscious about anything that i was doing i was following the footsteps of people who I looked up to and some of these guys, like they were just like monsters, you know, and, and I wanted to be just like them, you know, and that's, that's what I thought was the epitome of being a man, you know, to be an active gang member, you know, and drug dealer and doing those type of things, because mm -hmm. that is literally, I swear that is all I saw. <laughs> I didn't see anything else. I didn't know anything else. I didn't know how to read, write or none of that. All I saw was going on in the projects in Compton, in the hood, and that was our lifestyle. So I didn't know anything else. So, But when this uh, assault happened in the California Youth Authority and I was placed in solitary confinement, that was the first time in my life where I was able to do some introspection. I was able to think. I was able mm -hmm. to look at myself, you see? <laughs> and, like, I feel the same. I felt the same of the fact that, you know, that a woman had actually got hit, you know, during this assault because I come up from, you know, mother and two sisters. I grew up around women, female. Mm -hmm. And so even as a gangster, there was one thing that was never tolerated and that, that was never acceptable. And that's that, you know, you would actually put your hands on a woman. And so, when I was in solitary confinement at that time, uh, my conscience ate me up. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was every day. It's like I'm fighting and arguing with the guards. Uh, they're, they're shooting tear gas in my cell every day. They would strip me naked every day. Uh, I'm kicking on the doors. I'm screaming at them. They spit in my food. They put pepper spray in my food. And so I was just like this little angry frustrated kid at mm -hmm. 17 years old and at the same time my conscience is eating away at me because of the fact that i don't agree with what just happened <laughs> and assault a staff assault that i was involved in mm -hmm. you know we actually intended to assault 
this male guard, but this a female guard was actually present too. And she got assaulted too. And so that right there is just like, it fucked me up. And so every day I'm battling, I'm battling with the guards and I'm battling with my conscience about the fact of what we just done, you know? And so it's like, it ate me up so much to where I was like this little angry old kid. Hmm. And one day I looked in the mirror and I just, I just looked like shit. And I told myself, man, it's like something just clicked in my head and like, look, man, you are some shit. <laughs> I, for real, I told myself, I'm like, man, you are some shit. So either you're going to continue to be some shit or you're going to try to do something to become better. And so from that day on, it's like, it's crazy. It's, it's, I can't really explain it, but I just clicked. It's just like I did just like my attitude and perception kind of shifted hmm. at that moment because it ate me up so much that the only way I could feel a little bit of peace with myself was to acknowledge that, look, man, I'm some shit. And the thing that I've been doing are some things that a man shouldn't be doing or anybody with some types of substance shouldn't be doing. And so I, I did a lot of introspection, a lot of, uh, from that day on, I would just sit up and think and lay back and, and, kind of like question you know where I was going in life and the things that I had been through in life and from that I just started to evolve and from that the guards even started to see the change because no longer I would no longer sit at the door and scream and kick on it and argue with them when they would you know shoot gas into my cell and stuff it got to the point to where I would just sit there and just take it you know because i was at the point now like i'm not getting anywhere fighting you know and that uh i needed to come up with a way to where i can be in control of my own emotions without letting the guards be in control because i found that i was pretty much being a puppet and that if they came and shot some pepper spraying myself now i'm just this irate erratic person and yeah. i didn't agree with it so you know i, I got a little more self-composure and started uh being a little more conscious of the things that i were doing and took a little more control over myself and they recognized that and so they surprisingly they bagged up on the things that they were doing and all of a sudden wow. i started getting books and this was the first time that I ever really had book, a book, right? Huh. So I'm 17 years old. I don't know how to read, really, you know. And so I get a dictionary and I get a novel. And it, it happened to be like a Jackie Collins novel or something back then. But I just started reading that. And then when I was reading that, I was able to see that there was another world out there other than the world in life that I had thought only existed for me in the ghetto. I started reading other books and started learning about, you know, uh, black culture and history and realized that, you know, me as a young black man, that there was something to be more of value to who I was than what I had been taught 
are misled to believe it. And from there on, I just started devouring books and started changing my attitude and perception on life. And I pretty much made like a 180 degree turn, right? So what happened after that was I ended up going to court for the assault, plead guilty to three years in California Department of Corrections. So they took me out of the California Youth Authority, placed me into the California Department of Corrections. Now I'm 17 years old, and but I'm in here with grown old violent gangsters now, right? Mm-hmm. And so once I got there, I pretty much continued because fortunately I, uh, I was surrounded with some older guys who were pretty much seasoned and uh, understood that, you know, education was more important than anything. So I developed that little structure there. I think I did like 21 months in, in level four yard in, Cal- in Calipatria, California Department of Corrections. And I was uh, released out to society at the age of 19. But now the thing is that So when I was released from society, I was a totally different man. The guy that I was before, I was no longer that person. Even the people in my neighborhood looked at me different. I went from Mm -hmm. wearing all black to wearing light color. (laughs) I went from being like looking like a gang member to now looking like a square. You know, and I started going to this uh, a vocation school where I was learning about electronic and computer technology. Uh, I was doing good. I was out for like five months. And one day my parole officer called me and said that I needed to come in. When I went there and went into his office, some some officers from the California Youth Authority came out of the back, cuffed me up, and took me back to the California Youth Authority. What? (laughs) Because I had life in the California Youth Authority. So what was supposed to happen is that once I finished the three-year sentence in California Department of Corrections, I was supposed to return back to the California Youth Authority to finish my life sentence. <laughs> what kind of sense does that make? That's insane. It don't. And like, so at that point, it's like, I just, I like kind of snapped again. I, at that point, I said, man, fuck the law. At that point, I said, I started for some reason, I started to believe that I thought it was unfair because mm-hmm. I was actually doing good. I was not committing any crimes or anything. I was scared to hold a gun at that time. I was completely 180 degree different than I was at 14. And I had like a vision. I thought like, okay, if I can stick with this trade school and get this computer and electronic technology stuff under my belt. And this school was actually in Torrance in a suburb. So it's at that time, I'm starting to see more diversity and I'm starting mm-hmm. to see other things. And I started to believe, hey, look, I might be able to make something out of this, you know, to where I can get like a good job and actually live a life outside of what I've known for the past 18 years. And so when they locked me back up right there, it kind of like devastated me. And so, you know, I got, I started to tell myself that, man, the only way that I was going to make it in America was to get some money. So I told myself, man, when I get out of here, I'm selling as much dope as I can. You know, I'm, I'm finna sell as much dope as I can get my hands on. 
you know, because I had made a vow that I would never mm-hmm. commit another crime of violence, that I would never do another act of violence unless it was in self-defense. So I couldn't go out and rob or steal or anything like that because when I was in solitary confinement for assaulting that prison guard, I pretty much told myself that, you know, from that day on, the only way that I'm going to be able to redeem myself is by treating people the way that I want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that means that, okay, anything that I do, you know, I'm not going to cause no harm upon somebody because to satisfy my own whims or desires. So, you know, I pretty much live live by the rule that, you know, do unto others as you want others to do to you. And so I told myself, look, there's nothing wrong with selling drugs. It's a uh, fair exchange, you know. And so while I was in the California Youth Authority that second time, I kept going before the parole board because they kept giving me different little uh, assignments. They want me to complete this program, do this program. And surprisingly to them, I was knocking them out because now you got to realize I'm not that same kid I was at 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer violent. I'm more educated now. Uh, I've been reading books. I've done. I've got my GED, so now I'm a little more sharper. And they see this. The parole board, they saw that. And so as I continue to knock out these different programs and with the support of my youth counselor, who also seen the change in me, they kept sending me back to the parole board like every three months. Normally you go every year, but I was going like every three months because I was doing so much. And surprisingly, like a year after that, the parole board said, you know what? He's made a lot of improvement. So they let me out. But still in the back of my head, I'm telling myself, you know, only way you're going to be somebody in America is to get some money. Because I kept telling myself that had I been rich at the time, that the California Youth Authority snatched me back up. If I had money and a lawyer, I probably wouldn't have gone through that. That's mm-hmm. what I kept telling myself, which might have not been true at the time. But maybe, maybe, maybe not. But but yeah, that's. I mean, that just shows. Yeah, it just shows how broken the system is. At that point in time, they didn't care that you that you changed. They didn't. They didn't even look at that. You know, you you've reformed yourself. They didn't care about that. That's just. Yeah, a, and so it's like. In other words, it like it defeated me. That little incident right there, I can look back on it today and say that it actually defeated me. It took because there I was, I was a child who grew up with little hope of actually doing something productive because I hadn't seen it. And so mm-hmm. when I had that little glimpse of hope and vision of doing something productive, it was crushed. And so that day, I, I told myself, like, never again, man, I don't ever try to live with on that side of the law because it doesn't work for a black person. <laughs> These are the things that I was telling myself, which, you know, today I don't have the same uh, attitude. But back then, as a 19-year-old kid and the things that I've been through, you know, without any uh, other experiences or any guidance or mentorship, you know, I pretty much sought the answers for my own questions, and and I got them from my from my observ from observing my environment, and that's what I told myself. Right. 
So, so take us forward to at the age of 28 when uh, when you get arrested. And this is, um, I guess you, you hadn't been out for, for that long. Maybe I have that wrong. But age of 28, you get arrested, sentenced to 35 years in federal prison. It's for what, what was what was the crime then? What was the charge? It was a uh, possession of marijuana. Which uh, what happened was uh, federal agents had loaded a uh, I was getting some marijuana for some guys down in Texas, and the guys had actually got hired some undercover federal agents to transport the marijuana to uh, St. Louis, where I was at at the time. They didn't know they were undercover agents. They actually thought they were truck drivers. And so when I went to go pick up the marijuana, the agents actually took the the marijuana and put it in the back of a U-Haul van. And so when I went to go pick it up and got in the van to start it, the van wouldn't start, so they arrested me. And I was charged with uh, possession of marijuana and uh i was actually found guilty of it uh, and the, the 35 years that was because of your priors yeah because of the priors priors played a big role in the 35 years so you have this uh you have this sentence you're convicted of take us through this escape that you you successfully escaped from a maximum security detention facility that was monitored by by camera. We were being monitored by camera, right? Twenty four seven. It uh, when I was arrested, I was arrested two weeks after the conception of my only child. She's sixteen years old now. So I found out at the time of my arrest that I had a child hmm. coming into this world, and so. I was devastated because I'm also facing a life sentence. And so the only thing I could think about is that history is going to repeat itself, that the cycle continues. I grew up without my father. Now my daughter, my child is going to be born into this world without a father and repeat the cycle. And so at that point, it's just like, I told myself that I was a loser. I started feeling like a loser. I tell myself that, look, if, if I'm in here and this child is born and I'm not able to be a, pro- a father and be there for, I'm the worst person in the world. <laughs> and my pride, I didn't want to be the worst person in the world. I don't think I could live with being the worst person in the world. You know, it, so one day I was sitting in the cell looking out the window and, I said, shit, I got to break out. I'm going to try to escape and flee the country, get my child, take her with me somewhere where I could just live and, and be a father for 18 years. And then after that, who cares what happens? And so I tried to escape. I actually cut the bars out of a window in the cell. Somebody told on me. So they sent me to. Uh, how did you? How did you cut the bars? I I got a hacksaw blade smuggled in. 
I smuggled a hacksaw blade into the jail, had it smuggled in inside mm -hmm. of some uh, confidential attorney uh, documents, had it concealed. You know, they're real thin, had mm -hmm. it concealed inside the papers, uh, cut the and, bar. And that just cut? How long did that? How long does that take to cut through bars? I would think that would take quite a while. Yeah, it does because you got to take in the noise factor. You want to be as quiet as you can. Mm -hmm. Then you don't want other prisoners to see you. Then you don't have a handle on these things. So you're just really working with like a little piece of a of a saw blade. And, you know, you don't have a good grip with it. So I think it took me like a little over a week, 10 days to do it, to cut that bar. A little over a week, something like that. Uh, I was caught, placed in solitary confinement. When I was in solitary confinement, I managed to get another saw blade smuggled in, uh, cut a hole in the ceiling, got up to the ceiling, found a crawl space, found an exhaust vent, kicked it out, stuck my head out there. There was uh, some cops down there smoking cigarettes. <laughs> they looked up and I <laughs> got caught. Right. <laughs> Uh, they took me out of that cell, transferred me to a maximum security detention facility, which happened to be the Alton Jail, and placed me in a cell where I was locked in that cell 24 hours a day. There was a camera in there watching me 24 hours a day. I couldn't come out the cell for anything. I think three times a week they would come escort me to a shower let me shower for five minutes and take me back and put me in that cell. And uh, I managed to get a hacksaw blade in there. <laughs> and I, it took me a while, did a little uh, trickery, deceiving the cameras and had other prisoners do some cause distractions and on and off and I would made like a little dummy, like I was laying in the bed and I would be in the corner behind the camera sawing and working. And I think it took me like a little over a month, month and a half or something like that. I ended up getting a hole inside the ceiling. Once up in the ceiling, I was able to chisel through this other little barrier, then got up inside the attic of the jail where the ventilation system was made a, uh, a rope out of my blankets, uh, made a retraction device so that the rope will pull back into the vent as I fled away. Hmm. And I, I actually got away. So took, how, how long were you a fugitive for? I was only a fugitive for a day. It didn't last, didn't last long at all. Hey, just want to take a real quick minute here to talk about another Libertarian podcast. If you haven't listened to Good Morning Liberty, it's a five-day-per-week show. Nate and Charlie, I don't know how they do it, five days per week, pumping out fantastic content. Also, um, their Twitter game, I have to say, I've been following them on Twitter, is on point. At Good AM Liberty, Check it out. I don't know if it's Nate or Charlie running the account, but whichever one is doing it, fantastic job. Um also, their, their show. So what is their show? They are trying to really take the onus 
of trying to change people's minds of how uh, people view libertarians. And they're trying to do this by leading with a message of compassion first, rather than, um, you know, pounding on your keyboard and screaming at people like libertarians uh, love to do. So they're looking at ways in which policies impact people and using the principles of liberty to provide compassionate solutions. Uh, they both have uh, backgrounds in healthcare. They own a healthcare IT company. Check it out. Good Morning Liberty, wherever you get your podcast. You can also um, subscribe to their podcast by going to BernieLies.com, which uh, in an so awesome redirects right to their uh, their podcast links page. So check that out. Good Morning Liberty. So they, they tracked you down and uh, you know you, you end up serving time. Is that dog? Well, you know, obviously, at the beginning here, you have these, you know, three attempted escapes. So I guess you know, successful escapes from prison. When how, when did your mindset shift? Because I know that you, you know, you had a, you did some really good things while you were in prison. You know, you became a mentor, helping other prisoners uh, with issues, and uh, you know, became a positive force. Um, eventually, you know, you go on to to study the law, learn the law, and end up working for your own uh, release. So what, what what shift happened there? Well, after I was caught for that last uh, escape, I was sent to Supermax, uh, federal Supermax, which and this was before I was even on trial. Before I had trial, they sent me to Supermax, a federal prison up in Marion, uh, had me locked in there with the people who were already convicted, I was the only pretrial inmate actually there. And so at that point, I realized that, you know, the only way that I'm going to get out is through the court system. So I would spend every day studying law, reading and case law and learning everything I could about the law as it applied to my case. And uh, that's how I pretty much became accustomed to, to knowing the law. And because there were, I was in situations where I couldn't even get mail. The only thing I couldn't get mail, books or nothing, anything. The mm-hmm. only thing that I had to read was law, and so that's where I pretty much developed a keen understanding of interpreting the law, because I would read case law over and over again. Sometimes I might be in a cell where the only thing I have is one or two pieces of case law, and. I would read them things every day because that's the only thing I had to do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and and from there, I I learned how to interpret the law. And and so as the years went on uh, and I was actually released from, uh, well, in 2010, some producers in Europe contacted me about making a documentary about the escape. You know, they thought that it was pretty ingenious the way that it happened. And the fact that the amount of work I put into it and I was under constant observation and still was able to pull it off. So they thought it was a big deal, made a documentary about it. The documentary is titled Breakout. The documentary aired all around the world. And from that day on, I started getting letters from people all over the world who were pretty much inspired and impressed by my story. Hmm. Uh, to them, they didn't think that a person 
you know, from the streets of Compton and who dropped out of the eighth grade was supposed to be intelligent enough to pull off this type of escape. So uh, to them, it was inspiring. And just getting that type of feedback from people kind of like inspired me because that made me feel like, you know, maybe I'm worth more than, you know, what I thought I was worth. You know, maybe that I can do something, uh, you know, hard work. And I looked at that escape as hard work, even though it was against the law, but it, it kind of taught me like, look, if you can just, you know, put in some hard work towards something, sometimes people will appreciate you when you use your brains and, and, and to try to conquer things. That's when people tend to respect and appreciate you. And I think that over my entire life, that's all I had ever been wanting is for somebody to say, look, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate the things that you've done. You know, the things that you've done have helped me because it, I didn't I didn't really do most of the things that I did for me. I did it because I wanted to impress other people. You know, I wanted to be able to give to some people. I wanted money, not because of myself. I've never been like the flamboyant, flashy type of person. I wanted money so that, okay, when I come around, I can give it away. I can give it to people. You know, anything to feel like I was appreciated and respected. When I was out there gang banging and putting in work, I was doing it because I wanted to feel appreciated and respected. So when I started getting letters from law-abiding citizens and productive people all around the world who said that I was kind of like inspiring, <laughs> you know, that kind of like, a switch kind of like went off in my head. Like mm -hmm. you know, maybe I need to start living my life in a way where I use my brain and intellect. And that's how I'm going to be able to earn the respect of, you know, of people. And so later in solitary confinement, I, people wanted to know more about my story. So I wrote, wrote a book, Chasing Freedom, and I spell it D-U-M, and the reason was because that I found that I had been chasing freedom the wrong way. All these years, I'm thinking that, you know, even like before I went to jail, you know, the, the void, because we do these things because we, there's a void within us that we want to fill, and, and I believe like, okay, if I can get a whole bunch of money, I'll be free. I'll mm -hmm. be able to escape the ghetto. I'll be able to escape police brutality. I'll be able to, you know, escape all of this madness that I grew up in. If I can just get a whole bunch of money and then once in prison, I'm thinking, okay, if I could just get out of prison, then I'll be free. But in, in all actuality, I was going about it the wrong way because freedom is really a mind state. First thing, because you can find happiness in prison. <laughs> you can find happiness anywhere on this earth if you look inside and, and, and take control of yourself and your desires. So so I, I wrote the book pretty much giving people my life story and trying to help people understand why I was the person I was, why I did the things that I did, and what I believed it would take for me to be a better person and hopefully that it can teach other people how to deal with people who come from environments or 
situations and circumstances as I did and to help kind of reform us and help us see the direction to where we can be more productive and successful people in life. So that was my whole purpose of pretty much writing that book is to give people insight and give people insight so that they can understand and that they can understand where we come from, why we do the things we do and what we need to do co- to correct it. And how, how hard is it, you know, being in prison, you're writing a book. How hard was it to get that book published while you were uh, still in prison? It's kind of, it's nearly like impossible. You have to do everything yourself. Even like, and even just writing the book was a, was hard work. The good thing about it, I was in solitary confinement. And so I had plenty of time, but even still, it took me almost two years to actually write that book. I would write eight, 10 hours a day. So you were just write, writing it out by hand? Just writing it out by hand with the mm. flimsy ink pen that, that goes out every other word. You got to bend it and beat the ink pen. Wow. <laughs> now I'm in solitary confinement, so it's all type of madness going around me. You got guys in the cell next door. Uh, fighting with the guards, so they're shooting pepper spray and gas all on the tear. When that happens, you got to cover your face up, your coughing, and it's just so much, such a ruckus and violent environment. But I was able to persevere and, you know, block this stuff out because I wanted to get my story out there. Because at the time, I'm telling myself that this is it. This is the only way my story is going to get out there. And it wasn't even so much about me. It was like the pain that I was feeling because here I am in prison with a 35-year sentence, likely never going to get out. If I do, I'm going to be very old. I have a child out there I can't be there for. And so I looked at it like my life was pretty much over. And so this book right here is the only way I want the world to know. I want the world to know what I went through, why I became the person that I was, and hopefully that people out there will understand and be able to prevent other people from having to go through the things that I went through. And so I was determined to get that book out. And so all day I would write. I'd write it. I'd finish it. I'd write it again, throw the old one away. At the same time, I'm reading uh, books on learning how to edit and grammar write punctuations and grammar and all that type of stuff. And, and I was able to put it together. Surprisingly, it's a hell of a book. Everybody who reads it loves it. And so when the book was, I was actually released from solitary confinement in, in 2015. And I was sent to the United States Penitentiary in Canaan. And when I got there, uh, I checked into this this pro, I enrolled into this program called the Challenge Program. And the Challenge Program is a modified therapeutic community where they teach prisoners cognitive skills, uh, rational thinking, how to uh, change your perception so that you can change your attitude about life and the world and, and start to be more in control of your destiny as opposed to perceiving things the wrong way and allowing that to frustrate you and send you down a road to self-destruction. So I excelled in that program, became a mentor, started teaching classes, developing curriculum, 
even with that, I started doing some things that everybody, a lot of people were impressed, impressed by, you know, because I was pretty much committed to it. I, it was at, I was still at that point to where, look, man, even though I'm in prison, you know, my life still matters to somebody, even if it's to another prisoner. Or even if, you know, my daughter is aware of the things that I'm doing in here to help, maybe that will make her feel a little better about this situation so that she don't look like my life was a waste or that she suffered and I didn't try to do anything productive as a result of her suffering. So a lot of driving forces was behind me that, you know, compelled me to do everything I can to try to be great, even in them circumstances. And at the same time, I was still studying the law. So I was helping other prisoners get out of prison, get their sentences reduced. Uh, I was working with mentally ill prisoners. I was intervening in violent conflicts. I was uh, squashing beefs amongst prisoners. I was I was doing all type of stuff and it, it made me feel good. That's how I found my inner peace by, hmm. you know, trying to be as much of a hum humanitarian as I can, even in them circumstances. And so I self-published the book on Amazon. And shortly after that, producers in Hollywood came across the book. They read it. They fell in love with it. And they optioned it for, for a film, for a feature film. And, and that's right being now, made right now? Is that right? We're going to production uh, this this year. Going to production next month. So are you going to be in the film too, or what, what, well, what kind of role do you have? I'm going to have a cameo in there, but I, I don't know how to act. <laughs> These are all, it's going to be a lot of big name actors in the film. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So um, I, I want to come back and ask you about that, but before we do that, I want to you know talk about you getting released because really, I mean, this happened so recently. I mean, we're talking what the beginning of this year is when you found a, found a loophole right? That you were able to, to use to get out. So can you take us through what happened there? Uh, well, when the first step act was signed into law, there was a clause. Well, let me take you back a little further too. In 1984, uh, Reagan signed into law, the sentence and reform act, which abolished parole and, Congress said, well, if we abolish parole, then that means there's not any chance of anyone ever getting out of prison early. And so what they did is they included a, a section which was called the Compassionate Release. And under Compassionate Release, they allowed the Federal Brewer Prisons to motion a federal judge to reduce a prisoner's sentence under what they considered to be extraordinary and compelling reasons. And Congress uh, designated the Sentencing Commission as defining what extraordinary compelling reasons are. Mm -hmm. uh, so fast forward to when the First Step Act was signed into law, they amended that clause and said that not only does the Federal Bureau of Prisons have the 
not only does a compassionate release motion have to be filed by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, if the Bureau of Prison refuses to file it, the inmate himself can file it directly to the court. And so pretty much it removed the Federal Bureau of Prisons as the gatekeeper for compassionate release because at the time, the Bureau of Prison wasn't granted any compassionate release motions. I think they were getting like 12 a year and most of those prisoners who were granted it were actually dying. Most of them died within days or weeks after being released. So the right. purpose of amending it was to broaden it a little more so that people who really deserve to be released or a little bit of compassion can actually get it. And so so it really didn't doesn't the intent of the law was never to be used, you know, as people being sick or having an illness. It was you know, if people are actually getting reform to show compassion and give them their freedom? Well, somewhat like that. Yeah. To a degree, but not really, because they also had a a clause clause in their phrasing which said that rehabilitation alone is not extraordinary compelling reasons. Hmm. So there had to be something else. But the thing was they assigned the Sentencing Commission to define what extraordinary compelling reasons were. And the Sentencing Commission only gave four criteria. And one of them was that you were over 75 years old and pretty much couldn't take care of yourself. And the other one was that you were over 65 and you are, no, you were over 75 and couldn't take care of yourself and done two-thirds of your sentence. The other one was that you were terminally ill and likely to die soon. The third one was that you was a, you were the you are the parent of a minor and the other parent has deceased or uh, become incapacitated to where he or she can't actually the, be an effective parent to that mm-hmm. uh, minor child. So you can, the Bureau of Prison was allowed to ask the judge to release you so that you can be that sole parent. And the fourth was what they considered extraordinary compelling reasons as determined by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So I didn't meet either one of those first three, right? Because I wasn't over 75. Um, you know, I, I didn't have any terminal illness. Uh, and my daughter's mother was still alive and fully capable of being a parent. So in the fourth has to be done by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Because it says that they are the ones who determine any other reason. Federal Bureau of Prisons was not going to release me. They were not going to file a motion to ask that I be released because the Federal Bureau of Prisons is a branch of the Department of Justice. And as we know, the Department of Justice now is pretty much (laughs) their whole purpose is to put people in prison, not let them out of prison. Pretty much. And so, but there's a little contradiction there in that fourth clause, that fourth criterion, because that fourth criterion said that any other reason as determined by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. But now the First Step Act had been had amended the, the Compassionate Release Statute and said that a prisoner, even if the Bureau of Prisons refuse to file a motion, the prisoner himself can go to the court. So now you see how it contradicts there. Because Mm -hmm. if I can go directly to the court, 
then why does that fourth fourth criteria have to be determined by the Bureau of Prisons? If the Bureau of Prisons doesn't agree or doesn't want me to be released, then I should be able, somebody else should be able to determine what those other reasons are. And so that's where the contradiction occurs. And one of the reasons why the language uh, did not agree was because the sentencing commission was designated the job of defining extraordinary compelling reasons. And after the First Step Act changed the compassionate release statute, there wasn't enough judges in the sentencing commission to update the language of the sentencing policy. So therefore that language remains, which contradicts the whole purpose of changing the compassionate release statute. And I think at the time, most of the judges who were on because the sentencing commission is just a commission of federal judges Mm -hmm. and they're appointed by the president. Most of them had either retired or or whatever it was. They're no longer there. There's not a quorum. I think there is only four. There were only three or four judges, which wasn't enough to update the policy so that it can reflect the amendment that happened with the First Step Act. And Trump never appointed any judges to the Sentence Commission, so it was just empty for years. And so now that the Sentence Commission isn't able to update that fourth criterion to, to reflect the intention of the amendment, you have a lot of judges whose job is to interpret the law. So if you have a contradiction in the law, you put it before a judge, and the judge has to interpret it. And at the time, my judge had retired. (laughs) And so now I had a new judge who was uh, uh, Nancy J. Rosenstengel, who had been appointed by Obama, and she was a sweetheart. She was a darling. (laughs) And so I said, okay, if I can put together a motion arguing that she has the authority to define what extraordinary compelling reasons mean under those other reasons, then I can ask her to find extraordinary compelling reasons based on the fact that I'm in prison for 35 years for marijuana when marijuana is now legal in most states Mm -hmm. and the, the Department of Justice is not prosecuting uh, most marijuana offenses and other factors was all of the good things and positive things that I had done while in prison. And so I took a chance. I put the motion together, uh, got a lot of support from some prison officials, uh, psychologist staff who I worked with in the program, uh, people from out of society, put together the motion, filed it to her. She appointed a lawyer to represent me. The lawyer told me that I didn't have a chance. Really? You're not, she's not going to grant, you're not going to get out. You'd be lucky if we can get her to reduce your sentence to 25 years. Uh, And how many years had you served at this time? I had been in 16 years at the time. And so I'm telling him because I read the law. 
I will read a case law 10 times. So I'm able to see things that he do, he isn't able to see. He's, he's a public defender. He probably have 30 or 40 other clients that mm -hmm. he's working with, and he's putting a few minutes in or hours or whatever into each case. Well, I'm putting days and months into my particular case. So when he told me that and we were disagreeing, I wrote the judge and I told her, look, I appreciate you appointing this attorney, but I can pretty much hold my own here. You know, now if you want this guy to stay on to make things more effective and easily uh, for me to easily access the court, then go ahead. But just please allow me to be the one that's in charge here. Consider my argument. Consider the things that I present to the court. And sure enough, he took my motion, changed it up, took some things out, filed it with the court. The government responded, and he opened the door for the government to win. And at that moment, I wrote the judge, say, look, get him out of the way. I'm going to take care of this myself. So the U.S. assistant U.S. attorney responded by appointing two other U.S. assistant U.S. attorneys to the case. And we went back and forth. And I won. July 24th, the judge granted, granted my motion, immediate release. That is amazing. What So what did that feel like when that happened? When you found out immediate release... You're getting out. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I mean, it was it was it was a hell of a feeling. It was a hell of a feeling. It was uh, I, I can't even describe it. And sometimes today, I still like ask myself, is it real? You know, and it's like it's all type. There's a lot of great things that have been happening for me. And it's like some divine things, things that just you can't explain them. It's, it's how it's happening. And I'm going to give you an, uh, an example. Like, yeah. While this motion was pending before the court, I kept telling myself and I kept telling other prisoners, I'm like, I'm going home Friday. Right. I'm telling prison. they like, man, what's up with your motion? I'm like, man, I think she's going to grab my shit Friday and I'm going home. Friday come by. I had all my stuff packed because I'm just that hopeful and confident. I read it a thousand times. I sensed that this judge had some compassion and that she would do it. And so I'm confident. So Friday will come. I don't go home. Monday, Tuesday, I'm saying it again. I'm going home Friday. So one Thursday, I was sitting at a the typewriter typing a motion up for another prison, helping him get out of prison. And he asked me, he said, what's going on with your case? And I say, I think she's going to grant my thing tomorrow, which was Friday. Five minutes after I told him that, the guards came out and called my name. They say, Adams, pack your stuff. You got to go to R&D. Now, at the time, R&D, the only time you go to R&D is to pick up property, to transfer, or to go home. I don't have any property. Uh, at the time, the pandemic had all transfers stopped. Nobody mm -hmm. was being transferred in or out of the prison. So I say, okay, this is it. She must have granted my motion. I'm finna go home. I went and grabbed all my stuff, gave it away to all the prisoners. Got like my little pictures and a little few pieces of mail and went up to R&D. 
when I got to R and D, they say you you're not going home, you're transferring. <laughs> they all of a sudden the BOP had decided to start transfers again, and I was the first person <laughs> on the list. Now, but I'm getting transferred to a lower custody facility. But now to be transferred at the time, they will put you in quarantine before you move. You will go to quarantine for three weeks before you move. So do, do you think that they were transferring you because you were fighting this case because you were trying to get out? Do you think that had something to do with it? Nah, it was really, I was going to a lower custody facility. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was my time. I had I had five years of clear good conduct and everything I'd done, so they wanted to reward me by sending me to a lower custody facility. And so now I'm devastated. So I, the unit manager actually came up to R&D, and I told him, like, look, I have too, many, too much going on now. I don't want to be transferring in the midst of a pandemic. Who knows if I can catch this stuff? So I said, look, is there any way you can stop this transfer? He said, yeah, but we'd have to wait till Monday when the warden come back in and I can ask him. So I said, okay, let's do it. So he said, okay, uh, I'll come see you Monday and we'll talk to the warden and see if he'll do it for us. So meanwhile, they took me to quarantine. I was placed in a cell. When you're in that cell, you don't come out for nothing. You don't come out for showers or anything. You don't have any cleaning supplies or nothing. It was horrible. It was worse than being out in general population. I had a better chance at catching the coronavirus in quarantine than in general population. That's how nasty and filthy this mm. place was. So Monday, the unit manager came around and he said, Adams, you still want me to talk to the warden? And I said, you know what? Because now I'm like, sort of like, fuck it. I'm, I say, nah, I know. Just leave it alone. It, apparently it's in, in the universe's cards for me to be transferred. So, nah, I don't even talk to the warden. Get me out of this place. Let me just do this quarantine and get transferred to where I'm going. So two weeks later on a Friday, I was sitting in the cell and I'm kind of stressing, you know, I'm asking myself a lot of times when I'm stressing and I'm going through things, I like to ask myself, what is the meaning and purpose? Because I found that a lot of times we go through things and later on there's a meaning and a purpose for it that yeah. really is better for us. It strengthens us and, and we go through things for a reason. So I'm asking myself, if this judge is going to grant my motion, why would I have to go through this? Why would I have to go through this three weeks of quarantine, then be transferred to another prison after I've given away all my stuff, start all over in that prison, and then she grant my motion? So I'm asking myself, maybe it's not in the cards for her to grant my motion. Maybe she's going to deny it. And maybe it's meant for me to just go to another prison, lower custody, start all over, and perhaps I even start back getting dreams of escaping again in a lower custody. That's what I'm telling myself. So, so maybe I, it's meant for me to go to this lower custody because she's not going to grant it. And when I get to this lower custody, Kunta Quante, which is my escape personality, is going to be revived, and I'm going to find a way out there. So, But I'm frustrated because I can't find any meaning for me to actually go through this quarantine this hell for three weeks. 
So I take off my shirt and I finna do some push-ups. And it's Friday. It's about 2.30. Guard knocked on my door and say, look, man, pack up. You're going home. Hurry up. You got to get out of here right now. Wow. We got order to get you out of here right now. R&D was closed. So they take me up to R&D and they're trying to find some clothes for me. And the guys who worked up there, they got to work overtime now because they got to take me to the airport. So all of these staff members are coming up here because they've never seen somebody just released like this, especially me. Everybody knew me in that prison. Nobody ever thought that I would be going home, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so they're all coming up there. The unit manager came up there. So as I'm up there grinning from ear to ear, the unit manager came up there. And he said, remember when you told me not to stop that transfer? He said, because you said that maybe it's in the universe's cards for you to go through this. That's because that's what I tell him. Say, maybe the universe want me to go through this. Mm -hmm. He showed me the judge's order. The judge's order, which was just issued, said, release him, but first make him do 14 days in quarantine. <laughs> and it meets him, release him immediately after he do 14 days in quarantine. So you had, just, you'd already done it. I had just done it because <laughs> of the transfer. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So like, like, so when I was sitting there, said like, why the fuck am I going through this yeah. quarantine? It was the universe. I, it was a reason. I That's was going amazing. through it for a reason, you know? And so it's like, so it's been, it's just been like a lot of great things happening for me. And a lot of, because, you know, I've been doing a lot of great things and I'm confident and optimistic that things going to work out. I don't worry about things no more. Those fears that I had as a child and as a young person about money and respect and different things, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't worry about those things anymore. I don't have any more fears. I just live life and, you know, and just do the best that I can and, and, and try to help as many people as I can and be respectful and productive as I can. And, and that makes me happy. And at the same time, I'm being rewarded for it. So, something you said a minute ago um, made me think um, you were talking about when you were, you know, kept telling yourself that you're going to be released on a Friday and you're telling everyone you're going to be released on a Friday. Yeah. Do you believe and do you believe in uh manifestation? Do you believe in positive affirmations and that type yeah. of stuff? Yeah. I, I have no choice to, <laughs> I have no choice now because I said it and it happened. Mm -hmm. Everything that I've been saying has been happening for real. It's been like some weird type of stuff happening for me. I told I, I told the producers in this film in 2019, I said 2020 is going to be a great year for me. And it's everything that I've been saying has been happening. So it's like, yeah, when you when you constantly speak, then you can speak things into existence and you give it that energy. And, and it's been happening. So it's like, so that's why, like I say, I don't worry about anything. I just try to speak good, good things, great things into existence. Yeah. Where, where did you learn that? Where did you pick that up? <laughs> Probably in solitary confinement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to tell yourself certain things in order to remain sane, you know, because it's like either you can develop a, a harder stone or 
you can just remain passionate about life. And that's, that's one thing that I, I refused to do in, in prison was to allow that place to turn me into an animal, to turn me into a person who actually had no compassion to turn my heart into stone. Because once that happened, there's really no, no reason to live anymore. And so I would always remain positive, even when I felt like it was over. You know, I would tell myself, like, look, okay, if it's over, let's do something so that we can still exist. And so, and, and, and then once I do that, now I become a little more positive and optimistic. And that was just really, I guess, my way of, of keeping myself from going insane or, or pretty much dying in prison. I'll tell you what, man. I mean, that's even people who haven't been to prison. I mean, that's good advice. I think it's good advice for any time, but especially you look at right now with uh, the pandemic with, you know, you got to wear a mask everywhere. You know, people feel like the walls are closing in on them. Things are going to get better. You know, I, I think that that positivity and keeping your eye, you know, on the future and, and visual, visualizing that future, that is so important right now because people yeah. get get trapped in what's happening right now and it, it can really mess with your mind. Yeah. And like one thing I used to always tell myself and I learned from experience is that things will, get, they always get better. And then another thing that we have to understand is that they can get worse also. So, mm-hmm. Don't think that the situation or the circumstances of your life were just all that fucked up because it can get worse also. So sometimes we got to just take seize the moment. Wherever we are, whatever we have, we have to make the best of it and live it because at the end of the day, man, life is short and you may not get that moment again. So spend every moment, you know, making the best of it, no matter where we are, or what we have and strive for better, you know? And so Absolutely. that's. Absolutely. Hey man, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you for the past, but talking for an hour and 20 minutes now. Um, this is a longer show than, than I normally, <laughs> normally would do, but that's, I mean, it's, it's worth it. I mean, you have a story to tell, but uh, you know, before I let you go, I'm sure, I'm sure all the listeners are still still with us because uh, you know because your story was so compelling. But I want you to tell people you know where they can get your book, where they can uh, you know find you on your website, social media, the movie, all that stuff. Uh, you can find all that information. Uh, my Instagram is uh chasing c h a s i n underscore freedom f r e e d u m also, uh, you can go to my website, QuanteBoscoAdams.com, which is Q-U-A-W-N-T-A-Y-B-O-S-C-O-A-D-A-M-S.com. Or you can go to my publishing company, which is designed to try to help prisoners get their stories out there. It's uh, JailhousePublishing.com. Uh, and also uh, ChasingFreedom.com. C H A S I N F R E E D U M dot com, or you can just find me on Facebook, Bosco Quante Adams. 
Uh, and also, I just had to let people know that uh, Trump did not let me out of jail. <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to put that out there because a lot of people keep asking, is it Trump? Nah, it's not Trump. Uh, it was an Obama judge and my uh, interpretation of the laws that actually got me out of prison. So, Yeah, we, we were talking before, uh, I think before we started recording, but uh, yeah, during, you know, yeah, during elections... During, yeah, I guess during any time, you know, we can get divided on uh, on things things like that. Who's responsible for what? I mean, we all want the same thing, though. You know, some there's no reason somebody should be doing that much time, or really any time, for uh, for selling marijuana. So yeah. let's keep keep our eyes on that, and uh, I think we're making progress. I mean, slowly yeah. but surely. Yeah, we we are making progress, but I think we can make a whole lot more progress. And I think it's all it's just about us becoming committed to reform, and uh, mm-hmm. really committed to reforming. And a lot of it starts before people even go to prison. <laughs> That's my belief. And but once they're in prison, understand that a lot of prisoners still are capable of change, and that if we can invest in them and help make them better people for when they hit society, and by giving them some type of hope. Uh, by not sentencing them to so much time, and, you know, long sentences does not reform a person. I think it causes more damage than good. So, and I hope that a lot of people will, will start to understand that, and even you know, understand criminal justice reform, understand the laws, because a lot of people don't understand it. Even a lot of people in prison don't understand it, and that's why we have a lot of people who assume that it's all on presidents. Presidents don't do anything but sign a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of this stuff is dealing with Congress. So if we really want criminal justice reform, then we have to make sure that we have the right people in Congress, and, you know, who's going to actually uh, set these bills on the floor for a vote and actually uh, push them through. And that's, that's where it all comes down to. It comes down to Congress. It comes down to the House and to the Senate. And, uh, pretty much uh presidents are going to do what they're going to do yeah yeah oh sorry go ahead i just i just hope people understand that and and understand the facts and understand who's really behind criminal justice reform and understand and another thing that i want people to understand is that the first step act was not no criminal justice reform bill it was not robust as people think it was it did not free people from prison like people think most of the people who were freed from prison were actually freed only two or three months early because of the, the seven days a month, or well, seven days a year good time that they uh, had been robbed of for the past uh, 30 years had finally caught up to them. And that's why we've seen so many people released because of the First Step Act. But other than that, it was not a great bill, and hopefully we can get uh, – get get people together to where we can really push a real criminal justice reform bill through the Senate, through the House, and and get a president to actually sign it into law because the First Step Act was not a robust criminal justice reform bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to end the war on drugs. I mean, that's, you want to talk about real, real exactly. reform. That's what needs to happen. Exactly, exactly. And that right there is the root of everything. If we can end this war on drugs, then we'd be surprised how, how things would be a lot better as far as criminal justice. Mm-hmm. 100% Quante. Well, uh, I just want to thank you 
for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to the movie. And hopefully, uh, once it comes out, we can have you back on and we can yeah, talk more. Yeah. Talk more about criminal justice reform and uh, and catch up. So uh, thanks for coming on, man. Man, thanks for having me. And I look forward to coming back. And I hope everybody enjoyed it and continue to follow me and keep up with the story because the story continues. This is just the beginning. All right. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday. Another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone, before you get going here, after your next uh, next podcast or your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today, I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please, to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message, that we're going to reform this criminal justice system, is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new T-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the the tax on wax off shirt, just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front and then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy t-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your t-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash lions of liberty and with that being said guys thank you so much for joining me have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this just have an awesome day i'll talk to you next week this is john odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fire is the liberty burning <laughs>